Welcome to Canada's most irreverent talk show. This is The Andrew Lawton Show, brought to you by True North. Coming up, Conservative leadership candidate Scott Aitchison on supply management, affordability, inflation, and consensus. The Andrew Lawton Show starts right now. Welcome to The Andrew Lawton Show, Canada's most irreverent talk show here on True North. We've been covering over the last few weeks the Conservative leadership race. We've extended invitations to all of the candidates as they've announced and as they're making their way onto the ballot. And we've been trying to give them all a, an opportunity to come on and, and one-on-one talk about their campaigns, the issues, and we'll have to do a, another round soon. We, we've had good success so far, almost all of the candidates. We're, we're still waiting on two more who have not yet uh, agreed to sit down, but hopefully they will soon. In any case, today we bring you the next in that series, Scott A. Aitchison, who is a two-term member of parliament representing Perry Sound, Muskoka, and has run a, a very policy-heavy leadership campaign so far, which means it's great for me because we have lots to talk about just looking at the uh, announcements he's put forward, but also some other issues that have come up during the race. My great privilege to have Scott Aitchison joining me now. Scott, good to talk to you. Thanks for coming on today. Andrew, thank you for the opportunity. This is, a, this is actually a thrill for me. Oh, good. Well, I, I'm glad to have you on here. Hopefully, you'll still think that by the uh, by the end of it. I know I know this leadership race did catch a lot of people by surprise. It was wasn't something that was being planned for for quite a while. But why did you decide that you wanted to become not only the leader of the Conservative Party but ultimately the the Prime Minister? Well, I, I have a lot of years of experience in leadership uh, at the municipal level, particularly. I, I I tell people I kind of grew up on the front page of the local paper in Huntsville. I, uh, I served as the mayor of Huntsville the last five years before becoming elected to Ottawa. And what I, I guess one of the things that shocked me the most is the sort of divisive rhetoric and the, and the, you know, the, the bickering that goes on in Ottawa. And I just feel very strongly that what's missing in Ottawa is real leadership. I, I believe that leadership is about empowering and engaging and inspiring the people around you to great things. Uh, and that's the kind of thing that we did as, I certainly did as a mayor and I think Ottawa could use a bit of that as well. Uh, and so that's why I'm running. I, I have a lot of experience and none of the baggage of, uh, you know, years of Ottawa. We often hear, and I think for good reason, this idea of the Conservative Party as the big blue tent in it. You have your libertarians, your social conservatives, your red Tories, your blue Tories. We have people that are very concerned about vaccine mandates, foreign policy. Where do you fit yourself in that big blue tent? What sort of conservative do you define yourself as? Well, I, I guess I don't define myself as anything in particular. I think that it's important that we recognize that we're all conservatives uh, and that unity of our party doesn't mean uniformity, but we have to listen to each other. We have to engage with each other. And our leadership has to engage with all members and all different stripes of conservative. Uh, and that way, you know, we, get, we at least have to respect each other. And that's, that's what I believe is missing oftentimes uh, in, our, in our movement. And that's what I offer. I just offer an opportunity for everyone to be part of the discussion uh, and for us to all be heard. But obviously, as a leader, you're the one setting the tone. You're the one setting the agenda. So I'll ask it in a different way. What do you feel is the Conservative Party's place in Canadian politics right now? Well, I think that, I think that what, what we need to do is present a, a clear and concise message to all Canadians, not just Conservatives, but to all Canadians. I, I, I believe that fundamentally Canadians really do want a responsible government. They want a reasonable fiscal policy that makes sure that we're not 
you know, boring against our children and grandchildren's future. They want to make sure that they uh, have equality of opportunity in this country and that government gets out of their way when it's possible. Uh, I believe that government should be a place that's not all things to all people, but it is a place where nobody gets left behind. And I believe conservatives believe that as well, that, that we actually lift up those uh, most vulnerable in our society um, and, and make sure that the opportunities are there for Canadians to live their, their lives and, and achieve their goals and their dreams. I know you've been very aggressive in, in putting out policy on a lot of key issues in, in the last few days, uh, notably housing. This is one that I, I think pretty much every Canadian is seeing, certainly every young Canadian is seeing. And, and it's become, in a lot of ways, a, an issue without a solution. I mean, government federally and provincially talk about housing. What is the approach that you want to take on this? Well, I, I think that part of the problem, and this comes from my experience in the municipal realm, there are a lot of impediments to getting housing built, particularly at the municipal level. I think exclusionary zoning is one of the key problems. Now, of course, the federal government is not involved in municipal planning or zoning, but the, municipal, the federal government does have a role to play in making sure that municipalities and provinces are doing everything they can and removing the barriers to getting more units built. This is a question of supply. We need more units. And so I think that the federal government can take leadership here by tying federal uh, funding dollars for infrastructure projects directly to results on getting units built. It's, it's, it's a way that we can, we can help make sure uh, that we're all hands on deck, that we're working together with all levels of government and with the private sector to get units built. That's what we need done. Uh, and we see for years now uh, a liberal government that is absolutely amazing at announcing billions of dollars, but not anywhere close to delivering and getting and getting results. The problem with housing plans, as I see it, is that anyone who has a home is going to be very resistant to a policy which effectively is going to devalue it. I mean, that's the problem right now is that you have a seller's market. You've got people that are sitting on the, these giant cash cows for their retirement or for investment. So how do you, on one hand, get home affordability through supply, but on the other hand, don't uh, terrify people that are homeowners that uh, they're not going to be able to make as much money on this thing when they sell it? Well, I, I think that what we need to do is we need to look at the entire spectrum of housing. This is about first-time home buyers, but it's also about um, social housing and supportive housing and affordable rentals. There, there's a whole spectrum of housing need in this country. We need more supply on, on all ends of this spectrum. Uh, and and we're, not, we're not about devaluing people's homes. We're about getting more supply into the market to make it more accessible for more Canadians. That's really what it's about. Just continuing along with affordability, the carbon tax went up again this month, despite Canadians dealing with record inflation. You're saying absolutely no to a carbon tax, correct? I've been opposed to a carbon tax from the get-go because it unfairly penalizes those most vulnerable in our society, people on fixed incomes, lower income Canadians. Uh, it, it particularly penalizes rural Canadians uh, and particularly rural Canadians that, that work maybe two or three part-time jobs. I, I can give you examples of people in Paris, Salon, Muskoka, you know, that have to work in a couple of different jobs just to make ends meet. And, and it's not just more expensive for them to get to their job. It's more expensive for them to buy groceries. It's more expensive for them to heat their homes. Uh, when you live in a rural area, you don't, you don't have a lot of different options. And when you literally live paycheck to paycheck, that paycheck dwindling just makes life more expensive. 
So I think that a, that a carbon tax actually just punishes Canadians. I believe that we need to incentivize Canadians and help Canadians reduce their footprint. And there are countless technologies that, that, that we have now and that we haven't even invented yet that will help us reduce our footprint, do our part in the world, and then also take that technology and sell it to the rest of the world to help the rest of the world do their part as well. Now, you ran, though, in September for a party that put forward a price on carbon. So how do you square that with what you're saying now? Well, I, I think that it's important to be part of a team. And I obviously wanted to work as part of the team. Uh, it wasn't uh, my perfect scenario, obviously. And, and I think fundamentally we need to change that. Uh, and that's why I'm offering that today. Were you resisting that at the time? Were you trying to prevent your party from going down that road? Yeah, I, I think there were a lot of voices in caucus. Uh, what I said at the time was that, you know, at least it was a at least it was a tool that, you know, was maybe able to help Canadians keep some of their credits and they could use it to help themselves reduce their footprint as opposed to a big government program that takes money from you and gives it to somebody else. Uh, I, I, I ideally believe that no carbon tax help Canadians reduce their footprint, make life more affordable. As we talk about inflation more broadly, uh, an issue that is affecting, I mean, all of these things are interconnected when they're really about cost of living. And and this is an issue that I I think goes beyond the left-right divide. But again, not everyone can agree on on solutions. I know Pierre Polyev, for example, uh, your competitor in this race, has been heavily criticized for uh, taking aim at uh, the printing of money and at central banking. What's the the remedy that you would bring to inflation specifically, if there's one, and unless your answer, which is, I think, defensible, is to, just to focus on these other areas like the carbon tax, like housing and, and so on. But but is there a, an answer that you believe is within the purview of, a, of an HSN government to deal with inflation head on? Well, I think it's all the things I've mentioned, like you said, Andrew, but it's also it's also about reigning in government spending. There's no question that uh, you know government spending has an impact. Government borrowing has an impact on the affordability of everyday life for Canadians, uh, and we need a responsible, conservative government that will that will responsibly bring down that borrowing and and get our fiscal house in order. Let's talk about supply management. I, I must admit, I, I was quite surprised when I saw earlier this week uh, your campaign come out with a very clear-cut pledge to end supply management. This is specifically on dairy, the policy that has been keeping uh, Canadian dairy prices inflated for, I think, the better part of, of 50 years now. Um, but this has become the third rail in, in Canadian politics for, for so many people, uh, especially in the Conservative Party, where you have a lot of rural ridings heavily represented uh, by people that have a lot of voters that are in the dairy farming business here. So why are you why are you going there? <laughs> Let me ask that first off. And, and what do you want to do with this? Well, I think it's important for us to talk about policy that's, you know, not really working well for Canadians. Uh, this this is a policy that actually adds uh, a, a huge expense to Canadian families when they go to the grocery store every year, uh, almost six hundred dollars every year. And so uh, the other thing that it does, of course, is it limits our Canadian farmers from marketing their products to the world. I'll give you an example. The small country of New Zealand with about 5 million people exported $17 billion worth of dairy products last year. Canada exported 378 million, nothing. And so I, I, you know, we have some of the best uh, dairy farms, best farms in the world. There's no reason why they can't compete and, and be given the opportunity to compete on the world stage while also making life more affordable for Canadians who are struggling to get by because of carbon taxes, because of inflation, because of 
the dairy commission increasing prices yet again another eight they're planning to increase another 8.4 percent canadians can't afford this it's a bad policy that needs to change at the risk of generalizing, I, I can say in, in five years of covering this, I, I've not met a single dairy farmer that would support what you're proposing. How are you going to make that case to dairy farmers that think this is their lifeblood? This is the only way that they're able to stay solvent? Well, I always take a collaborative approach. It's obviously going to take a little bit of time to unwind a 50-year-old policy. Uh, and I think that obviously it starts with negotiation and discussions with farmers about how we make this process occur. Uh, but there's, there's, there's a collaborative approach to be had here that can actually give farmers huge opportunity uh, to market their products around the world and make life more affordable for Canadians. Now, you are proposing to compensate them for their quota. How much is that going to cost and, and where's that money coming from? Well, I, again, I, it starts with some negotiation and discussion with farmers, what the quotas are worth, uh, what that transition looks like is all part of that negotiation. So I don't have an exact number for you, but it's, it will be some short-term pain for some very long-term gain and opportunities for farmers uh, and more affordable life for Canadians. Just looking broadly, when, when you talk about the, the Conservative coalition here, I've met a lot of Conservative members of Parliament that privately agree with exactly what you're saying right now, but publicly wouldn't go near it for, for all the reasons we've talked about here. So why is this issue so challenging for Conservatives to take what I think is pretty clearly the principled free market position on publicly? Well, I, I think it's partly what the problem is with our politics. It's, a, it's, a, it's about slicing and dicing the electorate to make sure we can win votes here and win votes there. Uh, what I'm talking about is real leadership, making tough decisions that are the right decisions, uh, with a focus always on making life easier and more affordable for all Canadians, not just a few. Uh, that's what's fundamentally what this is about, what my leadership will be about, and what I think government should be about. We've seen a fair bit of bickering among a couple of your competitors, notably uh, Mr. Polyev and, and Mr. Charest, about the Freedom Convoy. And I, I saw a comment you made to Evan Solomon about how you're not in this race to talk about your, your competitors. But, but I will ask you about the merits of, of this debate here. I mean, the Freedom Convoy was, I, I think, a fairly uh, contentious one within the Conservative Party and the Conservative movement. I know you've said you're supporting ending all mandates, but, but what's your view of, of the convoy protests? Well, at the time it started, I, my comment was that I felt very strongly that the government ignored it. Uh, it you know, it, it would be an error, a mistake to ignore it. Uh, the fact of the matter is that wasn't just about trucker mandates. It wasn't just anti-vaxxers. I think it represented a much broader frustration and anger uh, in the Canadian public. Real leadership wouldn't have permitted the circumstances for that kind of frustration to get that bad in the first place. Uh, I said all along that the government should you know, should reach out and, and try to discuss the issues that, you know, a lot of these folks felt were really important. That said, every Canadian has a right to peaceful legal protest, but I don't believe that we have a right to block city streets and block people's homes for weeks on end with our vehicles. I believe it had to end. Uh, the point had been made and it was time to move on. I fundamentally think that what, what was missing there was leadership. It was a lack of leadership on the government's part uh, and, and this is the thing. You, you have to make sure that you engage with people, even those you disagree with. You can't just demonize one group of Canadians to appeal to another. That's the problem with our politics. That's what we've seen with this government. We, you know, you saw Justin Trudeau in the last election campaign when he saw political opportunity. 
demonize the unvaccinated to appeal to the vaccinated. Blame somebody else for your lot in life. That, that's, the way, that's the way you win votes. It's not the way you build a country, though. We need to call Canadians together. Uh, and, and, and what happened with that convoy was a lack of leadership and a, and a divisive tone from our prime minister that tried to drive a wedge between Canadians. I offer a leadership. I would be a prime minister that brings Canadians together. How difficult is it to be a consensus builder, which seems to be the theme of your approach to this campaign, in what is, for the reasons you've just mentioned, a, a very polarized political climate in this country, not just over vaccination status, although I think that has certainly inflamed a lot of this. I, I actually think that uh, being a consensus builder uh, is not hard work, but you have to be committed to it and you have to engage and listen and respect everybody. And that, ha that has to happen in our party. That has to happen in our party above all else. How will Canadians ever trust us with, with, with the keys to, to, to government if we can't work well amongst ourselves? If we can't respect each other, then there's no way they're gonna trust us to govern. And so that starts at the top. That starts with all members of caucus, all people in our movement. We have to learn how to disagree without being disagreeable. We can, we can work together, we won't always agree. As I said many times, unity is not uniformity, but it is engagement, it is listening, it is respect. That's what I offer. Do social conservatives have a place in your party? Absolutely, 100% they do. Of course they do. All perspectives are valid. It's important for us all to talk to each other. It's important for us to listen to each other. As I say, we're not always going to agree on every topic, but we have to listen to each other. And does that extend just to caucus discussions or, or does that extend also to free votes on, on matters of conscience that come before the House? Uh, I, I, I'm on the record as saying I think there should be more free votes in general in the House of Commons. Uh, I, I absolutely believe in free votes, particularly on conscience issues, but I think there should be more free votes. So let's take then the broader perspective of caucus management here, because I know that was an issue that a lot of people raised under the previous leadership, not just about carbon tax, not just social conservatives, but people felt like they didn't have the opportunity to represent themselves and their constituents effectively in, in that. So how do you, as an incoming leader, if you're successful, uh, make sure that, that you have a, a clear vision and a clear focus as a party, but also you are allowing your caucus to have that autonomy and independence? Well, I, I, again, I think it comes with making sure that you're listening to your to your caucus. Uh, there's no better focus group uh, for a leader than his than his own caucus. You have voices and perspectives from literally from coast to coast to coast. What 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 better representation are you going to get for for what Canadians are thinking, what they're talking about? Uh, an engaged caucus uh, is the is is the absolute best way for an for a leader to be properly informed about what Canadians are talking about. To me, that's exactly where it starts. But it's also about setting that example and making sure making sure that the caucus members talk to each other. We you know we have to we have to be a team, uh, and, and the only way we're going to be a team is if is if we are all talking to each other, and all respecting each other. We don't have to agree to respect each other. 
I haven't seen any official policy from you on this, but as we know from the last parliament, the uh, Liberals were, were trying to introduce at the time Bill C-36, which, which significantly uh, clamped down on, on online speech uh, by bringing back Section 13 of the Canadian Human Rights Act. Uh, this was the, the section that Conservatives previously opposed and, and had repealed. What do you think more broadly about some of these reforms, not just uh, C-36, which will be coming back with, with another number, but, but also the internet regulations we're seeing from the Liberals? Well, I, I actually served on the Heritage Committee in the last parliament when we first started talking about this. And, and my, my point that I kept raising over and over again with, uh, with the government that just kept trying to ram this through was that our freedoms, our freedoms are sacrosanct. They're, they're, they're fundamental to our lives as Canadians and to who we are as a country. Uh, and, 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 and that we always need to err on the side of making sure Canadians have freedom of choice, freedom of voice. Freedoms aren't taken away in one fell swoop. They're chipped away at bit by bit by bit. Uh, and so I, I, I was certainly opposed to their last effort at this. I'm opposed to their current effort at this. Uh, we need to ensure that Canadians have a voice uh, and, are, and, and, and can express themselves freely, whether it's, whether it's you know, uh, in newspapers or in, or, in the, or in the new community square, which is the online forums. Uh, there, there are tools right now to make sure that things like hate speech are, are dealt with. Uh, and restricted, but we need to make sure that Canadians have freedom of voice everywhere in this country. And and obviously, I would assume that means the Emergencies Act is not your go-to when people are using that voice. Well, I think uh, you know if, if there's if there's one thing that maybe many Canadians do know me about, it's it's my speech in response to the government's use of the Emergency Measures Act, and that at the time I commented that you know even even the lowering of the bar just a little bit on the use of the Emergencies Act. It's a dangerous thing to do. Uh, I felt it was a huge overreach to use that Emergencies Act. Uh, and and I, I, I think that history will, will in fact judge the Trudeau government harshly for their use of it. There was no need for it. Uh, and so, uh, you know, absolutely, it should never have been used. Uh, and and the, the only time it ever should be used is under truly extraordinary times. Just lastly, Scott, you are running in this leadership. If you are not successful, and I'm asking everyone this, not just you, don't worry, but if you're not successful, are, are you confident in, in your ability to serve any under any of your competitors if they end up winning? Are you confident that you have a place in, in the visions of the party they're putting forward and, and could put forward some of the things that you've proposed in this leadership race effectively as, a, as an MP, not the leader? Well, absolutely. I'm, I'm a team player uh, and I do believe in building consensus. And I, and I believe that that's, uh, it, that's incumbent on all of us as members of caucus and, and as members of a, of a broader movement. Uh, and I will always work hard to build consensus, work with my colleagues, uh, work with uh, conservatives across the country. Uh, I'll always be doing that, whether, whether I'm the leader or whether I'm a member of, of parliament or just a member of the party and not even a member of parliament. I believe in working together and building consensus. I will always do that. Conservative leadership candidate and uh, Perry Sal Muskoka MP Scott Aitchison. Scott, thank you so much for your time. Really appreciate it. Thank you, Andrew. I really appreciate the opportunity. That was Conservative leadership candidate Scott Aitchison. We haven't yet talked to all the candidates. We're working on it. We have not yet had any response from Patrick Brown or Leona Alislev to have them. We've, we've invited them on a number of occasions, so hopefully we'll have some interviews with them very soon. But if you want to check back on my other interviews with people like Mark Dalton and uh, Joseph Borgel and Pierre Polyev and Jean Charest and Roman Baber, you can go. And I feel like every time I do that, I for oh, Leslie Lewis as well. 
I think that's everyone. I don't. At one time, I, I accidentally listed them all but one, and then everyone got mad that I, I they thought I was excluding the one. And anyway, uh, thanks to uh, to everyone who's been watching those and, and sending me feedback. Uh, we'll try to get all the candidates back on as well as the uh, race progresses. So uh, hopefully, we'll uh, have more on that soon. In the meantime, hopefully, you have a great weekend as well. We will talk to you next week with more of Canada's most irreverent talk show. Thank you. God bless, and good day to you all. Thanks for listening to the Andrew Lawton Show. Support the program by donating to True North at www.tnc.news.